If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Going for your first ever run around the park. Literally running errands all over town. Running for the finish line and your personal best. If you run, you're a runner. Find the shoes and clothes to run your way at newbalance.com slash running. New Balance. Run your way. The NBA playoffs are here. And we all know playoff mode is a thing. Listen to the evidence. Playoff crowds are going wild. Playoff players are lighting up the court. Even your speakers are in playoff mode. Okay, we'll take it down a notch, but just a notch. Because this is the Turn It Up to 11 NBA Playoffs. Playoff mode is clearly a thing. The NBA Playoffs presented by Google Pixel continue on ABC, ESPN, TNT, and NBA TV. Why is it that with sparkling water, I'm always playing guessing games with what flavor I'm drinking? Is it citrus? Is it aluminum can flavored? Mm, not sure. Sparkling ice, though, they really mean flavor. Like in-your-face flavor. Orange mango, black raspberry. Don't even get me started on the strawberry lemonade. Kiwi strawberry slid right into my taste buds DMs last night and let them know who's boss. No subtleties there and no sugar either. But it does have vitamins and antioxidants. Find sparkling ice at a major grocery store or club retailer near you. Sparkling ice. Anything but subtle. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. From torrid affairs and messy jewels to vengeful ghosts and corrupt law enforcers, Georgian Britain loved a good scandal. For today's episode, I spoke to the historian and author Emily Brand about how these salacious stories were spread through Georgian society and why they caused such a stir. Thank you so much for joining us, Emily. You've written an article for the September issue of BBC History magazine, which charts eight scandals that rocked Georgian Britain. So I was essentially hoping that you can dish the dirt on some of them for us on today's podcast. But before we delve into the salacious details, I wonder if you could give us a bit of context. Was the Georgian era particularly fascinated by scandal? And if so, why? The very easy answer is uh, yes, absolutely. Scandal, basically, it's favourite thing. Um, (laughs) Obviously, when we talk about scandals, same as today, it basically means an event or a person who is causing some sort of public um, conversation, and that might be outrage, or it might be glee, or it might be 
both, a bit of both, um, because there's been some sort of transgression. And there are two main reasons why something might become a, a popular scandal, and it seems quite familiar. So the first one is a high society sex scandal. Uh, the second would be some kind of political corruption or maybe institutional wrongdoing, and especially so where that escalates into affecting society or even the nation at large in some way. And it's that the events that combine these two things set the world alight, as they might have said in the 18th century. So sex scandal might be adultery, especially if there's uh, a divorce, elopements or, or some kind of inappropriate match that might be based on rank difference or bigamy cases, uh, you know, all these sorts of things. And to a kind of gossiping public as today you know they're all just inherently quite interesting and we can see that in the fact in newspapers of the time that the the sex lives of the working classes sometimes make it in there so we might have an 80 year old lady marrying a teenage man um, or a runaway husband or you know bigamous wives or whatever but the difference is that they might be interesting but they don't have this impact beyond their little village or whatever so where where we're dealing with high profile figures it's more um catastrophic i suppose for those involved where for women it might be complete social disgrace whereas for men it's more about that kind of code of honor that we have in the 18th century and that can really snowball into something Bigger. And how would news of these scandals be spread and circulated in the Georgian age? This is a really crucial part of it, actually, of why the era itself was this sort of unprecedented world of scandal. It's because there's so many and increasing number of, of ways in which that can be spread. So we've obviously got personal correspondence. Surviving high society letters are, are absolutely full of gossip and it's just brilliant. One that I always quote is Horace Walpole, who's kind of the the gossip monger general of the, of the era. Um, but there's all sorts of things surviving in that. It's a historian's dream. We've obviously also got good old-fashioned word of mouth. So however you're learning about these things, it then becomes part of your tea table chatter. You know, this is a very social world as well. And then one thing to remember for the upper classes and the nobility, they might forget, but there's often the servant in the room when they're having these conversations. So that's quite an easy way for scandal to kind of cross that class barrier but then the real driving force behind why um, you know there was so much scandal in this era is the explosion of print culture which happens over the course of this century so we've got a growing number of newspapers we've got our satirical prints and caricatures which are always very ready to poke fun at people in power and increasingly just the fashionable and the rich within that we've also got dedicated gossip columns so they might be in the paper or pamphlets and other kind of periodicals so the famous one is the tete a tete column in the town and country magazine and they would basically pick a sex scandal of the time or an individual of the time and just spend pages and pages on their sexual histories and then include pictures they're mostly sort of titillating but then also there were ways in which it could be spread to people who couldn't read so we've also got people you know reading out newspapers 
on street corners or singing ballads and those spread how they do and towards the end of the era as well political engagement is really kind of on the up which is why what might seem at first like a personal issue can become very quickly like a nationwide conversation. So thank you. I think that's a really great primer on how the stories that we're about to discuss would have been disseminated. So why don't we start with a story that combines politics and sex, the story of a prime minister who got divorced and then found himself in a, shall we say, a compromising position. Just <laughs> putting it kindly. <laughs> yeah, so this is a great example of, of where that taste for boardiness and also political consequences collide and the story begins in late summer of 1764 and it's this quite attempt at a discreet separation between uh, an up-and-coming young politician the Duke of Grafton and his wife Anne the Duchess and their marriage had seemed quite promising but they they've proved to be very incompatible and he's desperate to leave basically. Now, you'd think they might immediately just divorce, but at the time, um, what that required, if you want to divorce, you need an act of parliament. And then to get that, you need to have a trial, usually where the wife is at fault. So what is a private issue very quickly becomes, you know, public dirty laundry. And uh, so you have to be willing to go all through that. And they're not. So they just part ways. He moves out and just tries to carry on with his political career. But unfortunately, or very unwisely on his part, he doesn't really focus on the politics quite as much as he should be. So he moves in immediately with his mistress, Nancy Parsons, who happens to be a well-known courtesan. And uh, I mentioned uh, Horace Walpole earlier. He called her the commonest creature in London. So it's not it's not like a great choice for a mistress. <laughs> The real problem comes a few years later in 1768, by which time Grafton has has manoeuvred himself into this position basically of prime minister. And this is just an absolute gift to his enemies because this woman, he's still living with her, Nancy, she is basically being treated not just as his wife, but as first lady of the nation. So she is presiding over his dinners, he's escorting her to the opera. She's living this amazingly luxurious life, but she's also getting access to and even a bit of control in these really, really powerful circles. So this is too much. This is just too much for his political opponents to deal with. And so the attacks on him become very intense. And we see it in private correspondence. We see it uh, in some notorious anonymous letters to the public advertiser, which really whip up, you know, anger about this. And it really combines that personal and political. So they're saying he's really depraved at heart, but also what does this say about his sense? He's unfit for this office and he is neglecting our nation and he's steering it into ruin, basically. Meanwhile, Anne, the Duchess, has been having her own many love affairs, but she has catastrophically fallen pregnant in her latest one with the Earl of Upper Ossery. And her only option here is divorce to remarry with her Earl and and legitimise this child. Otherwise, absolute social ruin for her, basically. And because that would also allow the Duke to remarry, they chat it through and they decide to go for it. Anne agrees to take on all the blame 
and they both sort of collude to keep the the worst from court so it will just be straightforward blah blah you know patch it up Uh, and they do go ahead and they do this in, in march 1769 obviously they're hoping it will die down the problem is that the trial is printed so everyone gets to read all of this Prints are, are very unforgiving, as well as, as these newspaper articles. So what happens is basically they get the divorce. They both remarry in a matter of weeks. Um, Anne marries her earl and he drops Nancy and marries a baronet's daughter because, you know, does what he likes, doesn't he, really? <laughs> but then it turns out that Nancy's also been having an affair anyway with the Duke of Dorset. So talking about scandal it's just the sex lives of these people is just a huge tangle the nba playoffs are here and we all know playoff mode is a thing listen to the evidence playoff crowds are going wild playoff players are lighting up the court even the speakers are in playoff mode okay we'll take it down a notch but just a notch because this is the turn it up to 11 nba playoffs playoff mode is clearly a thing the NBA playoffs presented by Google Pixel continue on ABC, ESPN, TNT, and NBA TV. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of sex scandals that we could delve into in this era, but one other one that particularly stood out to me in your article was the story of MP William Beckford. I wonder if you could share that with us and what it tells us about the moral standards or moral codes of the time. Yeah, I mean, this this one is strangely relatively straightforward. It's known as the powder and scandal usually we're in the autumn of 1784 and it's basically revealed that a teenage aristocrat William Courtney has been having a sexual relationship with a married 24 year old MP William Beckford so they're both wealthy very promising young men Courtney is the heir to a viscountcy and Powderham Castle in Devon which is where the name the scandal comes from and Beckford it's just this swaggering young man, basically, has inherited an absolute fortune, one of the biggest in the country, largely from his family's involvement in the slave trade. But he's also putting a, a real figure in political and literary worlds as well. So they, they have had a relationship for no one is quite sure how long, and it's slightly troubling in, in the age difference. I think Courtney's 16 and Beckford is 24, or something like that. So you know, today the outrage would be about the age difference. Now, back in their own time, it's it's the homosexual sex, basically. But there are various stories of discovery. But what we do know for sure is that uh, the revelations came courtesy of Lord Loughborough. And Lord Loughborough was the uncle of Courtney, and he was the political opponent of Beckford. So he has been probably in a position to get hands on their private letters, and then has got this motivation to leak them to the press, which is essentially what he does. And so, as I say, the issue here really is the the charge of uh, homosexual relations, which isn't just illegal, but punishable by 
death if it goes to court at this time. And Beckford and Courtney would be, to some extent, protected by their privileged class. You know, there are lots of accounts of gay relationships between boys at school and then, you know, older men, they have all their own language and all of this subculture which exists. Um, but there is that simmering element of real real danger as well as social disgrace. But when this does come out in the papers and becomes the, the topic of every tea table, that social disgrace alone is kind of enough, really. It's really distressing for both of them. The newspapers would sometimes just mock them. There's one that says something like, Mr. C and Mr. B have been caught in a grammatical mistake regarding the genders, as if they've made some error, you know, a laughable error kind of thing. And then others will say they've their behaviour sinks below that of beasts. So some is mocking, some is really disgusted and outraged. But in these things, they might not mention their name, but then they'll say, Mr. C has a castle in Devon. So it's like everybody knows who they're talking about. And, and Beckford in particular was branded this infamous wretch, um, one letter said. And so in terms of what happens next, Beckford kind of digs his heels in. He eventually goes off on some European travels with his wife to kind of escape all that. And, and Courtney is, is left to deal with the fallout, which is, which is very vicious. I think it's an interesting case, isn't it? Because we quite often think of the Georgian era as bawdy and pretty freewheeling. But it does show that there were actually a lot of moral consequences for people who did transgress at points. So move us now just beyond the top tier, the aristocratic crust of society. I wanted to ask you about a scandal which became known as the Cock Lane Ghost case. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, so, I mean, this one, for starters, what does that sound like? I don't know. Uh, it gets worse. <laughs> I mean, it, the story takes a bit of untangling, but essentially it's a hoax in which a, a ghost appears to accuse her former lover of murder from beyond the grave. Um, and it causes a scandal across the country. I mean, this is ghosts, this is sex, this <laughs> is murder. <laughs> but then mainly because so many are duped into believing this, ghost exists and then it also kicks up some questions about belief in the supernatural and also the trustworthiness of religions that might have believed in it. So we're in London in January 1762 and press attention is drawn basically to the house of Richard Parsons which is on Cock Lane where this mysterious knocking and scratching sounds are said to be communication from his recently deceased lodger Fanny which leads to the very unfortunate press nickname of Scratching Fanny for this ghost. Now, there's obviously that supernatural intrigue, but the real issue is that the ghost has been communicating with this very overexcited Methodist preacher who's absolutely convinced and has pointed some ghostly finger at William Kent, her former lover, who had also lodged with her at this house, accusing him of killing her, um, I think poisoning her. Now, Kent, as I say, had lodged with her there. He's still very much alive and he's understandably quite shocked <laughs> and annoyed <laughs> when this story starts coming out and, and all this publicity starts raining down on him. So public interest just really begins to escalate in this case and there are accounts of streets outside the house being absolutely crowded so carriages can't get through. 
Richard Parsons just starts charging people a fee to, to come in the house and witness a seance. So I don't know why that didn't start ringing alarm bells. But part of it is the, the high profile people that sort of came to investigate for themselves. We've got aristocrats. The Duke of York turns up at one point. It really divided opinion, but the fact that these high status people are giving it any sort of credence is, is helping its case. So cutting a really long story short, they undertake many seances um, and an investigative committee is set up. They end up opening up the real Fanny's coffin based on what has been said uh, in a seance. But the real revelation of the hoax comes with Richard Parsons' daughter, Elizabeth. And she has been the one constant in every seance. They can move places, but Elizabeth is always there. And basically, someone just discovers that she has hidden some bits of wood in her skirt or sometimes in her bedsheets, and she's just scratching and tapping away. That's literally all it was. So, um, so when that's revealed, obviously, huge amounts of mockery are, are coming down on these, these believers. And then it turns out that Richard Parsons and Kent were in a dispute over money. So it was just this weirdly dramatic attempt at revenge on his part. Uh, and he is eventually imprisoned. So it's it's an odd story and the reasons why it, it became a scandal. You know, it doesn't make too much sense to us nowadays. And part of the fallout from it was the religious controversy that it did stir up. Um, I mentioned the, the preacher who had been so convinced by that ghost and Methodism was kind of a bit more open to these ideas of, of supernatural and, and life after death and all these things. And, and this absolutely punched a hole in, you know, those beliefs. If you'll be so easily duped, it was kind of put up against the more reasonable Anglican faith. And there were sort of endless prints and, and newspaper columns devoted to mockery basically of, of these people. So as you say we don't really see so many supernatural scandals nowadays but one thing that we are definitely obsessed with like the Georgians is true crime. I wonder if you could guide us through the case of the corrupt thief taker Stephen McDaniel. Yes so I I weirdly love this one. <laughs> so this takes us we're in London again it's the 1750s um, it's a tale of corruption in the in the policing system, which in the 18th century is quite rudimentary. You know, we're, we're in the early days even of the Bow Street Runners, which is kind of the precursor to the Met. And so the system of law enforcement in London at the time worked much more on a local level. So it basically amounts to local people, this traditional role where every male householder would have to go out and do his bit for the night watch, where, where you're not paid, you're conscripted, you're basically given a stick and um, sent to deal with all these potential murderers and robbers. So this wasn't a very popular system. And another thing that people would turn to would be the thief taker. And the thief taker came about as parishes were able to offer rewards for the apprehension of criminals. So they're moonlighting as a thief taker. They would take it upon themselves to capture felons and, and haul them up before the courts. And so this is where we meet publican Stephen McDaniel and his kind of gang of thief takers. And their method of gaining these rewards is basically to uh, work together, seduce or entrap vulnerable young men into committing crimes that they themselves have set up, at which point another gang member swoops in and immediately arrests them 
They take them to court. They're found guilty. McDaniel gets his reward. Now, the kicker here, obviously, is the extent of the death penalty at this time in the 18th century. And you do pretty much anything. You steal a tiny thing and and you will be executed. So, you know, they're getting their reward, but the victims ultimately are killed. So what eventually catches them out is a case in July 1754. And they approach two desperate young men called Ellis and Kelly. I think it's in a tavern. (laughs) It's usually the scene of these sorts of things. They give them cheese and bread and gin. And they kind of convince them to to do what they call going on the scamp, which is robbing. They give them information of where they might get hold of some really good linen (laughs) on the road. So they go out. These two commit this crime upon one of the gang members. Someone else swoops in. They go to court. They're executed. They get their reward. And this process has repeated for years, basically, until um, one particular high constable gets a bit suspicious. Um, He takes in one of the gang into custody and and interrogates him, and he just spills everything, at which point McDaniel and three others are tried for perversion of justice, essentially. Older cases are then reinvestigated in it, and the, the extent of this corruption kind of becomes public knowledge. And understandably, the, the outrage at this is is acute. These are people who are supposed to be protecting the streets from crime and from violence. And it just led to, at the time, a huge public mistrust in these thief takers, which was really devastating for the Bow Street runners, who essentially were a more professional, more morally upstanding gang of thief takers. They were really trying to, you know, institutionalise it. So to the extent that the the Bow Street Runners representatives put an advert in the newspaper distancing themselves from these villainous wretches and McDaniel. So basically it just blackened the name of of the existing law enforcement and um, revealed how easily the whole system could be corrupted. And staying on the theme of violence, the final scandal I wanted to ask you about was the tale of a duel, a duel between a poet on the one hand and a military officer on the other. What can you tell us about that story? So we've got three main characters. We're in 1772. We've got a beautiful superstar soprano, Elizabeth Linley. She's just 17. Her love interest is um, the young Richard Brinsley Sheridan, who would go on to become a renowned politician and playwright. And then third, this married former military officer, Thomas Matthews, who has been pursuing Elizabeth. Many men pursue Elizabeth, but he has been doing so in a a really ungallant manner. I think he's putting it mildly. So in March of this year, Elizabeth is 17. She's wildly unhappy about this kind of harassment campaign from this man and and the public attention that she gets in general. So she cooks up this scheme with her friend and her friend's brother, who happens to be Sheridan, and she flees the family home sort of in the middle of the night and with the plans of going to a French convent and sort of letting things settle down and deciding what to do next. On the way, Sheridan somehow convinces her to abandon this plan because he was smitten and you know, he says, marry me instead. Now, she seems to have been totally okay with this change of plan. I don't think there's anything sinister, like he's got her in a carriage and, you know, is making her change her mind. But I I think this relationship begins. The problem is, in the note that he's left behind, Sheridan tries to sort of 
explain he's doing this for gentlemanly reasons. In doing so, he names Thomas Matthews as an awful sexual harasser, basically, and he says he's protecting Elizabeth from this awful man. Word gets out. Um, Matthews obviously feels that his honour has been attacked. He retaliates by putting an advert in the Bath newspaper, denying it, but also calling Sheridan a liar and a treacherous scoundrel, potentially also making some disparaging comments about Elizabeth as well. So when Sheridan hears this, he feels like his honour has been attacked. And when he gets back to England, he challenges Matthews to a duel. So dueling was this socially accepted way for for a man to, a gentleman, to attempt to defend his honour or or that of a lady. But it was outlawed in in certain places. So that's why you see, you know, people are doing it at five in the morning in a field beyond the parish boundary or, or whatever. But it gave you absolutely no protection, it being an affair of honour if someone was wounded or died. So it was, you know, not necessarily illegal, but if someone was hurt, you could be up for manslaughter or or murder. So with Sheridan and uh, Matthews, the duels that followed were an absolute mess, basically. (laughs) The first takes place in a tavern in London. It's over really quickly. Matthews loses and is forced to apologise. Sheridan's response is to go around sort of jubilantly telling everyone how amazing he is and and how cowardly Matthews is, at which Matthews challenges him a second time to to another duel, which takes place in July, just outside Bath. And this is the particularly unmanly combat because both of their swords break and the witness account just says that they end up hacking at each other on the floor with bits of broken sword. So this isn't what you're going to see in Bridgerton. And the outcome is that Sheridan appears to be mortally wounded um, and Matthews flees the scene. Ultimately, Sheridan recovers and after much uh, protest from both families, legally marries Elizabeth and writes a play incorporating it. So sort of temporary happy story for Sheridan. Hearing all of these stories, I mean, it's amazing to revisit them. They really kind of capture a spirit of the age. But what do you think that they can tell us as historical sources? What can they tell us from a historical perspective? One of the things is to just get a general sense of the moral standards of an age. You know, as you mentioned before, we can gather from the Beckford scandal. The issue absolutely isn't there that there's a potentially very young boy being implicated in this sexual relationship with an older man, but it's the fact that it's same sex, like that's the problem, which to us is very strange. So there's cases like that where you can kind of get a bit of a, a gauge um, on, on moral um, outrage, but also you can just gain the, an idea of the tone, of a, the spirit of a society and of an era. Over the course of the 18th century, we've got the, the rise of print media and the rise of popular outrage and political engagement kind of feeding each other as, as we go through. But then as we approach the Victorian age, things really do start to change. And we can trace that from political changes and censorship and repression of freedom of the press, essentially. We have this queen who's who's raised up as a beacon of new hope, you know, set in much better example than all of her her uncles. She's promoting these Christian values and, and the, this ideal of the family. So... Into this, we really see that these sorts of salacious scandals, especially, they fade away. 
was Emily Brand speaking to me, Ellie Cawthorn. Emily's books include The Fall of the House of Byron, Scandal and Seduction in Georgian Britain. And as I mentioned at the start of our conversation, Emily has written a feature detailing eight Georgian scandals, including some that we didn't have time to touch on in today's episode. If you'd like to read that feature, then head to our website, historyextra.com. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Brittany Colley.